I'm going to open tonight's message with one verse from the chapter that we left off last time in 2 Kings 23. You won't have time to turn there in your Bible, so just look up on the screen. In 2 Kings 23.10, the word says of Josiah that he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. We'll come back to that verse in a minute, but let me give you one that occurred long before 2 Kings 23 was written. Let's go to the law of God that was given from God to Moses, and in Leviticus 18, 21, we read this verse. God says to Israel through Moses, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. It may be hard, excuse me, hard for us to fathom that God's covenant people, Israel, the seed of Abraham, those who were specifically and sovereignly chosen by Yahweh to become their covenant people, they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the law of God, they had the prophets, they had in their history men like Abraham, like Moses, like Joshua. They had a history of God fighting for them. And God had told them from the very beginning of their journey into the promised land that he loved to bless them and that if they would follow his ways, that he would bless them in such a way it would mark them and distinguish them from every other nation that existed on the planet at that time. They eventually said, we will obey you. But not before they also heard this from God. If you choose to rebel against me, as heavy as the blessings would have been upon you, my curses will fall upon you. And here specifically, we're talking about a very clear commandment from God to ancient Israel, where he said, not just in Leviticus 18, 21, but many times through Moses, but also through Jeremiah the prophet, who prophesied shortly before um, which was prophesying at the same time King Josiah was reigning. God was saying to Israel over and over again, you cannot sacrifice your children. You cannot sacrifice your children. You cannot sacrifice your children. You see, Molech and Chemosh were two pagan deities from the Ammonites and the Moabites, the pagans that surrounded Israel. And Solomon, in a backslidden state where he forgot the Lord his God, married wives, and these wives, these foreign wives, introduced these pagan gods into the national fabric of Israel. And so Israel, as the years went by, had adopted these gods and set them alongside of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But worshiping these pagan gods came with a little extra sauce to it. They got to indulge their flesh when they worshiped these pagan gods. They got to practice all sorts of sexual and sensual things that their God would never allow them to do. So as time went on, they became less encouraged and less intentional about Yahweh and much more um, appetizing they found the pagan gods around them. Now, one of the things that they learned was that the pagans, when they sacrificed their children, their newborn babies, to the god Molech, they were taught that if you bring your firstborn baby to Molech, and you sacrifice him, 
it will bring back upon you an abundance in your crops, an abundance in your revenue, an abundance in your future fertility. But if you want to have a lot of babies, you better bring your first baby and sacrifice it to Molech. And at other times, another pagan god named Chemosh, but primarily Molech. Now, I want to do my very best not to be overly graphic, but I, I, I also don't want to be vague tonight. Um, they didn't call it abortion at that time, and quite frankly, it wasn't abortion. These babies were born and then immediately sacrificed. The babies came forth from the womb, so more accurately, it should be called infanticide. But you and I also know that, and you'll see in this very message tonight, that life within the womb is life that God ordains, and they are babies. So whether outside of the womb or inside of the womb, we can still legitimately call the practice of abortion infanticide, the killing of innocence. I don't have to use a lot of yelling and screaming and inflammatory language tonight because the facts are harsh enough. But when Israel would come to the place to sacrifice one of their children, usually their firstborn, under Molech, this is what they would do. They would come to a certain place, and in that place there would be a large, typically metal, bronze, or iron um, deity crafted. And Molech would have the body of a man with outstretched arms like this, tilted slightly upward. He would have the head of a bull with horns coming off of it. And where the statue, where the abdomen would be, would be an opening much like a fireplace. And within there, there would be coals, there would be wood, there would be stones, and there would be incredible heat. And the arms were made out of metal also. And because they were attached to the body wherein the fire laid, those arms would be as hot as metal can get under an open flame. And the Israelites would come and they would bring their firstborn baby and they would set it on the tilted arms. And the baby would begin immediately to suffer. If there was any mercy whatsoever, the baby would be rolled down the arms into the belly of Molech where it would die. Here we have this statement about the area called Topheth that King Josiah went and ritually defiled. It was a pagan worship site where Somehow, King Josiah knew if he went up there and did something to that place where they had been sacrificing the children, he could defile it to where the people wouldn't use it anymore. Topheth, there's some, some, some different opinions about where that word comes from. But one scholar says this, it, he believes it is clearly connected to a, a Hebrew word that means drum. And the practice was that as the children would be sacrificed, and it wouldn't be just one child, it would be multiple child, that there would be the priest of Molech who would beat loudly the drums to drown out the screams of the children. They became known as Topheth in the valley of Hinnom. And day after day and week after week and month after month, for years, Israelites, people to whom belonged the covenants and the promises, would sacrifice their children to pagan gods, not knowing that those gods were dead, they were nothing, but the idea of those gods was fueled in the demonic realm. So the thief could come to seek to steal and kill and destroy. And Israel got sucked into that life and it was part of their national fabric. And quite frankly, nobody was batting an eye 
until Josiah came on the scene. So God had told them in Leviticus 18 that if you do this, you will be destroyed. Then later he would say to Jeremiah, this won't be up on your screen, in chapter 32, verse 35, he is speaking through Jeremiah and he says, they built the high places, Jeremiah, in the valley of Hinnom to cause their children to pass through the fire unto Moloch. And God said this, I never told them to do that. It's an overstatement. Obviously, he never told them to do that, but he says this in Jeremiah 32. He said, neither did it ever enter into my heart. The idea of sacrificing children is so far from the heart of God that God himself said to ancient Israel that an idea like that would never, ever occur to God. So where does it come from? Well, we know automatically it doesn't come from God, and I would just go out on a pretty sturdy limb and say this, an idea like that can only have its origin in hell. It is the idea of the enemy of God who loves to kill what God loves to give life to. So we go a little bit further, and let me just give you, after that very heavy intro, let me give you God's heart on children. Let me just give you a several passages of scripture just so we can get inundated with, okay, I'm drinking from a continual stream that is telling me how God, the creator, feels about babies. And so let's begin where everybody would begin in Psalm 127, verses 3, 4, and 5, where the psalmist says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And they will not be ashamed when they speak with the enemies in the gate. So right off the bat, right off the bat God declares that children are a gift. They're a gift. They are something given from the heart of God. No matter what the circumstances, no matter who the parents, God ordains that there should be a life, and he takes that life and a purpose within that life, and he wraps it in human DNA, and he implants it in the womb of a woman. And that is an expression of the divine heart of God. God decrees, as we'll see in a bit, that that life should be. And then he says there are a reward. You know, there are illegitimate means of conceiving children, but there are no illegitimate children. Every child is legitimized simply by the fact that God ordained that life to be, even when the means of conception are illegitimate, sometimes even criminal. But the life itself is ordained of God. And he says that those who have children are blessed. There is a very special blessing that heaven attaches to conception. It is a gift, it is a reward. And it is a blessing, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's unexpected, even when it's unwanted. God's heart is, I have blessed you, I have gifted you, I have rewarded you. We could go on, and we will. We're going to see that, well, let me, let me give you this, it'll be up on the screen. God is in control of all conceptions. We see this in Scripture through the birth of Isaac, through the birth of Samuel, through the birth of Samson, 
through the birth of John the Baptist, and even through the birth of Jesus Christ and others in Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we see that God is the one who is in control of those who conceive. We find this when God foretells um, a birth, when he speaks of it ahead of time, when he says, this is what I'm going to do, and he did that with all of those I just named. In essence, every human life is the expression of the intention of God Almighty. We may not know what the purpose is, but I promise you, there's never been a conception that God ordained that didn't have divine purpose behind it. And so when we begin to think of that, we remove from our vocabulary, that child was an accident. That child was a mistake. That child never should have been conceived. No, 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 friends. When we come to understand that the sovereign God of heaven is the author of all life, and even through the most painful or, in our culture, inconvenient circumstances, when God gives a baby to a woman's womb, he is saying, I intended something with this child. Well, let's go a little bit further. Let's talk about how we can see that purpose because... God has a purpose for all infants. It's not that the purpose is later on in life, it's at conception. He has a purpose for all infants even while they're still in the womb. These are all verses that deal with children in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, God is speaking to Jeremiah who is now an adult, but he says this, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So you see this that the purpose of God came before the conception of Jeremiah. That the conception was an outflow of the purpose of heaven. Heaven had a purpose, God had a purpose, and the only way that purpose would be accomplished was through the baby that God ordained, who would later be named Jeremiah. And God actually had a conversation and said, Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was struggling with his calling. He said, Jeremiah, before you were you, you were in my heart, and I made you you because I had something I wanted to do on planet Earth, and you are the one I wanted to do it through. So it, it gives meaningfulness to conceptions. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Isaiah's writing, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Again, giving you a poetic kind of flavor to the idea that God, while that baby was still in the womb, God was assigning it identity and name and purpose um, concerning Jesus Christ. Luke chapter number one, verses 31 through 33. This is obviously being spoken to uh, Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, apart from the other examples, we might shrug that off and say, well, yeah, of course the father had a, a purpose for his own son being born. But friends, let me just remember, there's the human aspect to the person of Jesus Christ. He was not only the son of God, he was Mary's nursing baby. He was human life in a human womb, conceived by supernatural means, but nonetheless, it was God saying, I have a purpose in him being born. Paul, the same thing was said about the apostle Paul. 
in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul's given his testimony. He said, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Paul's, again, explaining his ministry, but notice what he said. He said his calling and his purpose was on him even as he was being set apart from his mother's womb, even as he was being born, he was birthed into the divine purpose. And then John the Baptist, of course, in Luke chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, uh, the angel Gabriel speaking to um, Elizabeth, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, speaking of John the Baptist. He will never drink wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. This is, this is so crucial. If God ordains a purpose and has an intention in every human life, consider the audacity of mankind to exterminate that purpose, to snuff it out. Consider the pride of man that would say to a sovereign creator, I will kill what you ordained to live. And that's what happens when anytime a baby is aborted, it is saying, my desires are more important than your decree. My life is more important, most honestly, my lifestyle usually is more important to your purpose. And we don't think of it like that because the, the, the truth of God's word has now been choked out with the thorn of politics and individual liberties. And the desire of an individual has now uh, superseded the decree of God, at least in the American fabric. Well, let's go a little bit further because the debate now is when is a baby a baby? It, it, it's, it's not surprising that the enemy would um, raise up some from the secular and scientific realms who could speak with authorities. They have degrees and they're brilliant in academia. And they become the spokespeople for why a baby isn't a baby until, and nobody can pinpoint exactly when. Well, let's just look at what the scriptures say in Psalm 139. Psalmist is writing and he says to the Lord, he's speaking to the Lord, this is a vertical psalm. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Watch this. He's talking about his physical body. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's poetic language for talking about being formed and fashioned by the hand of God in the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That is a, a penetrating set of statements from the psalmist. He's saying not only did God make him physical, make him human, but all of this is taking place in the, in the unseen realm 
where the, the hidden hand of God f uh, fashions a baby in the womb. This is long before sonograms, long before medical expertise, and yet writing under divine inspiration, we get a, a very elementary description of, of how a baby grows into that which appears and we can clearly see is human. But David didn't say that this occurred outside of the womb. He said it occurs inside of the womb. There's the common belief now that a baby isn't a baby until it's exited the womb, and even it exited the womb, and even then it's debatable in our culture. Where the word of God is very clear. The word of God is crystal clear that the baby is a baby within the womb, and every single human life can have these words applied to it, that the hand of the creator fashions that baby, puts all of those parts together makes that baby to the desire of the one who has all authority in creating that child. And then David went on to add, and you have seen all of my days before I lived a single one of them. So the omniscience of God knows the entirety of the scope of a life of a baby. And what mankind has done has come in and again has said, it doesn't matter what you planned. It doesn't matter what you purposed. It doesn't matter what you foresaw in this child's life. This child is an inconvenience within me. Even to the extent that we won't call it a child, we'll call it a massive tissue because that will make us feel better. And God's word is very plain that it's a baby. It's a child. It's a human. It's an expression of the divine purpose of God that he wraps in human DNA and says, I decree all of your days to come. Scripture also describes children in the womb as having both personalities and emotions. This is subtle, but it's there in the Scripture. We don't have time to read all the verses, but if you can read later Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 27, you're going to find out that Jacob and Esau struggled for power while they were still in Rebekah's womb. That's what the word of God says. The word of God says that even in the womb, these two twin boys were grappling for dominance in there, having personalities, having um, emotions within. You've got back in Luke chapter one, verses 41 through 44, you have John the Baptist leaping for joy is what the scripture says. The baby, when he heard the sound of Mary's voice, the mother of the Messiah, the baby within Elizabeth leapt for joy. Now, brothers and sisters, this is where we say, do we believe our Bible? Do we believe secular science? Because secular science would say, well, a fetus is incapable of emotion, but God's word says, no, you got it wrong. I made babies. That one leapt for joy. So they're capable of sensing and feeling and emoting. Um, we, we went so far as to when our children, especially with Alicia, you know, new parents, we didn't know what we were doing, but we thought we'd do everything to bring forth the perfect child into the world. And we had all of the, we did all sorts of stuff. One of the things I bought was a stethoscope, a doctor's stethoscope. And I took the part that normally goes on the ears that you hear from, and I put it across Amy's belly. And I took the end that usually goes on the heart, and I would read the scriptures to Alicia in the womb. That doesn't make me a super parent, but it does, it does say this. It says that there was something in us that knew whatever she's hearing in the womb is going to affect her. 
Y'all know that. Did you ever get cravings, ladies, when you were pregnant and you ate one thing more and more than you ate anything else and then your baby, as it's three or four years old, has a craving for the same salsa that you ate while you were pregnant with her or something? I believe it's true in the spirit, too. We've had this happen. Uh, A family that may be in church every single Sunday and uh, where that baby would be in the womb every single Sunday over nine months. And that baby would hear me preaching like I'm preaching now while it was in the mother's womb. We'd go to the hospital and we'd see the newborn baby and I'd walk into the room and I'd greet the parents and the baby would wake up because they're hearing, they're connecting, they're thinking, they're, they're alive, they're people. You know, when we slow down and we think of things from God's perspective, the political issue is just kind of like, you know, we're not really talking about politics. We're talking about the heart of God on what is, in my opinion, the single most important issue that emanates from his heart, which is life, both physical and, of course, spiritual life. But spiritual life only arrives to those who have been granted physical life. So let's go a little bit further with this. How am I doing on time? Not too terrible. I don't think my voice will let me, Elizabeth. I... <laughs> so now we, we're going we're gonna to peel back the curtain on the resistance of the enemy. We're going to talk about abortion being Satan's scheme. And without giving him an ounce of glory, it's been a very, very effective scheme in the USA since, uh, well, basically for the past 45 years. I'm going to give you some statistics that aren't going to make us want to run the aisles and shout and high five. But friends, the longer the church remains silent on these issues, bullied by a culture that doesn't want to hear the truth, the more that we remain quiet, backed into a corner, being polite and politically correct, the more babies are going to die. The more we invite the heavy hand of God's discipline on us as a nation. And so we're not going to avoid the topic. We're going to go there. Let me begin with just this statement. Satan always hates what God loves. And Satan, America is not the first civilization that has murdered its, its children. And I'm going to share with you in just a moment that historically, every civilization that has murdered its children, God destroys. Every one of them. So let's look at just some statistics here. When it comes to the reasons for American women having abortions, 26% desire to postpone childbearing. It's just not convenient to have a baby at that time. So 26% of abortions are done because of an issue of convenience. It's just not the right time. 21% is economic. They can't afford to raise the child at that time, which is, by the way, why you're going to see a burgeoning ministry here in this assembly and across the missions base for adoption and fostering. Because the church has to do something more than just say abortion is wrong. There are people that don't want to have abortions, but they don't know what to do because they can't afford it. Meanwhile, the church has not stepped up to the place that we should to say, if you can't afford it, I can. 14% of women have a partner that does not want the child. So 
there are the relationship reasons for having an abortion. 12% are too young and have parents that object to the pregnancy. That's the immaturity reason. My child's just not old enough and parents step in and they make the decision for the child. 11% feel that a child will disrupt their education or their career. So ambition is a reason why 11% of uh, abortions happen. And as callous as it sounds, 8% simply don't want to have another baby. It's just they're indifferent to it. Now these, these following things I'm going to say are not going to be up on the slides, but I just want you to listen. Um, about 1.3 million abortions per year occur in America. About 3,600 every day and approximately 150 babies exterminated every hour. So by the time we leave here today, uh, we could realistically say uh, in the time we've been here at church tonight, 300 babies have been exterminated in the United States of America. 47% of abortions are performed on women who have had at least one previous abortion. The argument is always raised, especially by certain segments of our culture, and I, I do believe it's an issue that at least warrants explanation and discussion from those of us that have a Bible-based belief on the sanctity of life. But the question is always raised, what about rape? What about incest? 99% um, of abortions, 99% have nothing to do with rape or incest. Less than 1% involved rape or incest. Uh, then we have the... Uh, the the concern about fetal abnormalities. There's something physically wrong with the baby or the child. Isn't it merciful to not allow that child to grow up with a, a disability? Um, I will tell you again, only 1% of abortions occur because of fetal abnormalities. And then you have the issue about the mother's health being in jeopardy. No doubt about it, that would be a terribly excruciating decision for parents to make if the mother may not live through the birth of the baby and the only hope that the doctors are giving for the mother's guaranteed survival is an abortion, that's less than 3%. And so the arguments that want to draw the spotlight away from 97 to 99% of abortions which are done for some form of convenience, they want to spotlight the, the fetal abnormalities, the mother's health, or the... Um, horrific accounts of rape or incest. Now listen, I, I want to make sure you know my heart in that. I am not discompassionate for any of those situations. Um, those are terrible, excruciating situations for us to fathom. The question ultimately comes down for me is the sovereignty of God did he allow the conception? Did he ordain the life in that womb? And if he as creator, even though he did not um, substantiate the means in the case of rape or incest, but is the child cursed because of the one, the male who brought it into the world? My answer would be no. My answer would be that neither rape nor incest would be um, a legitimate reason to assume the permission of God to abort the baby. The, and this is just me, you may not agree with me on this, it's okay. Um, it would be very difficult 
in a situation for Amy and I as Christian parents, if that situation had come to us that Amy might die if she was to give birth, I know the heart of my wife. And she would say, I will trust God with me, but I will not exterminate my child. So friends, what, if, if nothing else, what I'm, um, what I'm doing is I'm slowing down the cacophony of voices in our culture that want to sum this thing up like that and tell the Christians to go about their business. In the same breath, I want to say to the church that if we were to step up and we were to take ownership in this area of intervention on behalf of the unborn, the abortion rate would fall and it would fall dramatically if Christians would be willing to say, it's not enough for me to protest, it's not enough for me to, to, to just give an opinion or to, to vote in every four years according to my favorite politician that, that will stamp my, my vote on this issue. We have to say as a body of believers, they need more than our words. Let us not love in word only. Let us love in deed and let us love in truth. Um, Perhaps the only thing that might sound a little political for me tonight is something that I want to give you because I'm very, very concerned at the level of ignorance in our culture concerning Planned Parenthood. I, I'm not going to linger here, and I'm just going to talk about Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was a eugenist, which just simply means she believed that there needed to be a superior race that dotted the landscape of, of the American culture. And if you just do a, a very simple Google search... Um, and just Google, Margaret Sanger, racist quotes. This abhorrent woman had a not-so-subtle hope to exterminate black people from the fabric of American society. She founded Planned Parenthood. In a letter in, I believe, written to, I forget the doctor's name, I believe the year was 1939, she was coaching on how to uh, advance the agenda. It wasn't called Planned Parenthood back then, but to advance the agenda of, of eugenics. And she was talking about making sure that they trained and indoctrinated African-American physicians to go to African-American uh, communities, but they needed to be clever in how they kept those African-American physicians in the dark. And in her words is, we don't want to expose the fact that we want to exterminate the Negro population. It's the founder of Planned Parenthood. Let me give you some quotes from her. She is the one who said this, her, probably her most infamous quote. The most merciful thing that a family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. She also said, our failure to segregate morons who are increasing and multiplying a dead weight of human waste, an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. And much of that was directed to her views of African Americans. Then she said this in complete contradiction to what God's Word said. She said, the marriage bed is the most degenerative influence in the social order. Our objective is unlimited sexual gratification without this burden of unwanted children. I know there'll be some that don't, don't think I needed to mention that, but I want you to understand that Planned Parenthood, and I do believe some of this has come to a greater light 
in the last several years. But Planned Parenthood is nothing but a money-making abortion uh, mechanism. That's all it is. It is all about the money, and it is diabolically fueled. I, I have no problem saying to you that Planned Parenthood's founder was demonically controlled, and for her to initiate what has now become the abortion machine of the United States of America, which, by the way, is funded by your tax dollars. I'm not real sure how it happened, but the racial hostility that I believe is, again, is sourced in hell, Planned Parenthood is an arm of that. Most abortions in our country take place with African-American women. Most abortions are coming from low-income African-American communities. And if you and I do not believe that there is a, a strategy of Satan to come against and not only oppress, but to exterminate the black race, we're deluded. And we have in our country, and by the way, I know the argument is, well, that will never happen. There, there, there's too many of every race. My friends, doesn't it matter to us if one black baby is killed? One Hispanic baby, one Asian baby, one white baby? Does it really have to be this default that we are so numb because of the astronomical, off-the-chart numbers of babies that have been exterminated that we, we don't even blush? We don't feel it anymore as a nation. I know some of you do. But as a nation, we don't feel it. It is a political football. National surveys show that 90% of the people who gather and write and report our news are supporters of abortion. 90% of those in control of the stream of information that peppers your brain through radio, television, and internet, 90% of them are abortion supporters. One study showed recently that 93% of Hollywood actors, screenwriters, producers, and directors are also abortion supporters. So those that are making our movies that are filling the minds of generation after generation are also supporting this. Let me give you some other statistics. I, you know, just for a moment, let me exhale for a moment. I don't take pleasure in sharing any of this. I'm a preacher of the gospel. I, I preach God's word. I was talking with the Vegas earlier tonight, just talking about how, what a thrill it is to just go verse by verse through the scriptures and teach God's word because it's alive. And it, it just, we are made alive when we hear and believe and obey the word of God. And so this is not something I enjoy doing, but I'm gonna tell you, I just feel the, the heart of God on this. I'm talking about like right now, the grieving heart of heaven over this issue. More babies are murdered, and I use that word because I believe abortion is murder. More babies are murdered every year in America than the combined total deaths of Americans in every war we have ever fought from the Revolutionary War until today's wars. In the eight years of Hitler's reign in Nazi Germany, six million Jews were killed. In eight years of American history since Roe v. Wade, an average of 12 million babies are murdered. We don't bat an eye anymore. 
twice the amount of babies, uh, excuse me, twice the amount of Jewish people killed in the Holocaust are, are, are murdered every eight years through legalized abortion in the United States of America. So let me throw some stuff up on the screen. I wanna to talk to you about your alignment. You have a choice to make on this issue. And it is your choice and you have to make it and all of us are gonna give an account one day for it. And, and I don't think this is like a, a subcategory of things that are important to God. I actually believe that this issue is paramount in our nation from the perspective of heaven. And I'm gonna explain why in a moment. God has severely judged or completely destroyed every nation or civilization that has gone unrepentant of murdering its children. Right now, we are in an unrepentant state as a nation. And if you're waiting on Washington, D.C. to repent of this, you'll be waiting until the end of days. The only hope is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the only hope in this. And not just in our church houses, but in our influencing our culture again, like we once did when abortion was a crime. When the church lost her influence, the 50s, the 60s, early 70s, guess who became the voice? Secular humanism, which says, hey, life is not precious. Life is physical, exterminate it, carry on with your life, because your life's more important than the life within you. So let me give you some nations. Biblically, you can look at Egypt. Pharaoh slaughtered the babies. Do you remember that? He was looking for their deliverer and he slaughtered the babies. And within 80 years, that entire civilization at that time in ancient Egypt was judged with famine, plagues, and death. Don't think for a second that the plagues and the famine and the death that came when Moses was 80 years old had nothing to do with the fact that at the time of his birth, Pharaoh slaughtered the innocents. Um, Ammon, which was just another uh, tribe in, the, in, the, in Canaan land when Israel moved in, they were the originators of this false god Moloch that I spoke of earlier, and God destroyed them. Have you met any Ammonites lately? The Moabites, they offered their children to the false god Chemosh. God destroyed them. There are no Moabites around anymore. You even have Old Testament Israel, and this is where we really need to pay close attention. They adopted, as I've already mentioned, the pagan practices of child sacrifice within their idolatrous worship, and God allowed them, Israel, the apple of his eye, the people of his covenant, Israel, allowed them to be invaded, destroyed, and taken captive by foreign invaders. Interestingly enough, when Israel came back from their captivity and from Babylon, uh, they never practiced infanticide again. God disciplined them. It, just read through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophecy was given to Israel prior to the judgment of God falling on them for many things, but not the least of which is mentioned over and over again in the book of Jeremiah is they were slaughtering their children to the false gods. They were killing their babies. And they kept doing it up until the time God said, you won't listen to the prophets. I can't speak to you anymore. Babylon, come down, take them captive, destroy the nation, and you're going to spend as a people 70 years in captivity. And when that 70 years came to an end, they came back and they never killed their babies again. They became monotheistic again. They never sacrificed to um, the false gods. In New Testament Israel, around the time of Jesus' birth, 
Remember, Herod's slaughter of the innocents at the time of Jesus' birth preceded the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Herod was the leader in that generation of the nation of Israel. He was a terrible leader. But the slaughter of the innocents and Herod's demonic attempt to exterminate the birth of the Messiah, um, he found out that, okay, Jesus was born two years earlier, so he gave the decree in the land, kill every male baby in Israel two years old and younger. Political decision, a law written into act, and it was carried out. And Rachel's weeping and lamenting was heard all throughout the land as the babies were killed. And it wasn't too terribly long after that that um, Israel, Jerusalem, was destroyed. Let me speak about your nation. This won't be up on your screen, just listen to me. The flaming stench of legalized abortion in America cannot help but to invite the judgment of God. I'm going to say this, and I don't mean this irreverently at all. I mean this strongly. If God does not judge America severely for killing the unborn, he's going to have to apologize to Egypt, to Ammon, to Moab, not to mention, by the way, the Incas and the Mayas who also sacrificed their children. God's going to have to apologize to ancient Israel because all we're doing is exactly what they did. That's a sobering thought. And I want you to hear me on this. This is, this is prophetic. This is not happy prophecy. This is not God's opening up a new door of opportunity for you. This is going to be your season. This is broad prophetic warning and sobering that if America does not repent of infanticide, the God of the Bible has already proven he only goes to one recourse to a civilization that refuses to repent of that, and that is destruction. And the American pride that says we are invincible, we are the top, we can't be defeated, we're rich enough, we're smart enough, we're industrious enough, we're civilized enough, we're technologically advanced, we're militarily, un, un, we're peerless in our military. Nobody's going to defeat us. I'm going to tell you something. All it would take is a whisper of God from heaven to the angels and we're done. Brothers and sisters, we need to receive this and we need to say, what am I doing? What is my part? What in the world am I doing? Can I make a difference? Uh, the answer is you absolutely can make a difference. Say, Jeff, will, will we ever stop the, the, the practice of abortion and infanticide in America? Well, let me just tell you this. I know if we don't lead the charge, there will be no other force that can stop it. There will be no greater influence than the Holy Spirit-filled church of Jesus Christ that aligns itself with the heart and the word of God to say, we will not stand for this anymore. We will not wink or turn a blind eye to legislation that makes it easier and more accessible for young girls to get abortions. We will not be silent anymore. We will not stand by while multiple millions of babies continue to be aborted over the years in our country for matters primarily of convenience. The psalmist was writing the words of God in Psalm 94. 
I'll put verse 16 of Psalm 94 with verse number 20 and just listen to these words and let's apply it to this issue of abortion. Who will rise up with me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me, God says, against the workers of iniquity? Can wicked rulers be aligned with you, those who frame injustice by a law? You see how that applies to abortion? Will we become allies with those who frame up injustice against the unborn with their laws? Will we align with those people? So Jeff, I thought you weren't going to talk about politics. I'm going to tell you something. There's a political decision that needs to be made, but it's not a political issue. It is a core spiritual biblical kingdom issue that has tributaries that flow into all sorts of segments of life, including politics. But I remember reading that verse as a very young Christian before I was saved in 94, and I think I voted for the first time in my life two years after that as a 26-year-old. I think it was the 96 election. And I remember reading that and saying, God's wanting to know who will stand against him, against evildoers, And then he's saying, are my people going to align themselves with those who frame up injustice through their laws? And I had to say, I can't do that. I don't want to give an account to God for that. I don't want to stand as one who aligned in an area that was clearly contrary to the heart of God. And so um, I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what happened in my heart. What drives me every four years, and there's so many important issues, and I am not indifferent to any of them, but none of them can bring me to a place where I could ever, as a Christian, vote for a candidate who did not protect the unborn. I could never do that. So what can the American Christian do in my remaining remaining moments? Elizabeth, can you stand up for a second? When we dismiss tonight, if you want to know more about how to get involved in this personally, you say, Jeff, I don't know where to begin. I don't even know what questions to ask. I don't know. I want to introduce you to Elizabeth Marshall, who spends a great deal of her heart life and her thought life and her time life investing in protecting and speaking out on behalf of the unborn with Bound for Life and just in other areas. And Elizabeth, I asked her before the service, would love to speak to you about anything that she can do to help you find out where you might be able to give a voice. So let me give you these. Then we're going to, I'm going to show you one other thing and then we're going to be dismissed. What must the American Christian do? First of all, become vocal against the accepted policy of infanticide, abortion. Let your voice be heard because theirs can't. Secondly, pray for mercy for our country. Pray for mercy for America. Intercede on behalf of those who hold government positions so that their eyes, their their spirits that have been blinded by the enemy can be enlightened so they can see things as we see them from the word of God. We have to come at this as a stronghold and strongholds are torn down through spirit-driven prayer. Because the one who is in us is greater than the one that is in the world. But there has to be an eruption of our our compassion and our caring enough to actively intercede that those that are making these decisions would have their eyes enlightened. 
Thirdly, believe that God expects you in some fashion to stand against abortion as an evil practice. That's according to those verses in Psalm 94 that I read you. He expects you to. It's not just for our, our senators and our representatives. It's for us. And by the way, you're going to be very unpopular. At work, you're going to be unpopular. At school, you're going to be unpopular. In your family, you could be unpopular. That's the way it is with a lot of things as Christians. But ultimately, we've sung tonight that he's the king over every king and the Lord over every Lord, and he's our God. Number four, understand this, that a candidate for government office can be right on every other issue, but if he or she is wrong on the issue of the abortion, the Christian should not align himself or herself with that candidate. Fifthly and lastly, please remember with me, Christians, in our zeal and our passion about this issue, that we must zealously share the message of absolute forgiveness for every and all sin, including abortion, and that it's available right now through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died to purge us from every manner of evil. Our position and our desire and our, our, call it whatever you want, our mission in this area is not helped by being vulgar and unloving and unnecessarily harsh Friends, the, the amount of, of women that have had abortions in the church would blow your mind. And, and it's not us to, it's not, it's not, it's not Christ-like to come down with verdicts of judgment and harshness and threatenings as if abortion was the unpardonable sin, because it's not. If you've experienced an abortion, if you chose that at a time in your life that you wish you could undo, I'm going to pronounce something over you that are in Christ. You are clean before the Lord. You are accepted in the beloved. You are complete in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to you because you are in Jesus Christ. And if the enemy is accusing you, then do something to silence him. You can't undo anything that you've done in the past. But would it not be a reasonable thought to consider? I can't undo what I did, but I can help somebody else not to do it. Let me give you a visual. Would you throw the picture of Michigan Stadium up on the screen. Once you look at that stadium, it's the largest outdoor stadium in the United States of America. It has 113,065 seats. It would take 530 of those stadiums to seat all the children aborted since Roe versus Wade, if those children had been allowed to live. 530 of those stadiums that's what we've done in America. That's how many little lives, innocent, helpless, defenseless lives, we have exterminated via legislation. And those are only the ones that have been counted. Friends, this is a sin against God that only the blood of Jesus can take off of somebody's record and only the power of Jesus in a committed church. Only that will reverse the cycle of murder in our nation.